We acknowledge that we are settlers, recording this podcast from the lands and waterways of Hawaii and Bibumin country. We stand with the first peoples of the lands and waterways we occupy, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and Kanaka Maoli peoples, as well as acknowledging our own peoples of Olohenga for our continued fight, our united fight for self-determination and land back. From sand to salt water, we extend our deepest aloha to Tupuna past, present, and future. We are leaning in, learning, and listening. Nomaluminaka, Maloni, and Talofalava. Welcome to the second episode of Sawatakin. My name is Emile Ungvula and I am the co-host of Sawatakin alongside the wonderful Brandon Takadema. I am so excited to share this second episode with you, but before we do, I must say Noa Ia Mapre and Bulorinaka Tale Richards, who both donated to our copy patron, keeping us going in the recording room and mixing room. Hakohetai lahi lele for your generosity. It really, really means a lot. If you love the podcast and you want to show your support, you can buy us a coffee via the link in our show notes or leave us a review. So, in our second episode, we are speaking with the incredible Seuta Affili Dr. Patrick Thompson. Patrick Thompson, let me give you some information on Patrick Thompson, the amazing Patrick Thompson, before we get started. Patrick Thompson, let me say it one more time, is a lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland the principal investigator for the Manalangi Aotearoa Pacific Rainbow LGBTIQA+, MVPFAFF Health and Wellbeing Project, the Pacific Data Co-Lead for the Human Rights Measurement Initiative. He has a PhD from the University of Washington, Seattle, and he lived in South Korea for nine years. He's also a freelance writer and consultant for many projects, and I mean many, including SOGI Rights and the Pacific. Just a heads up, We had some connection issues during this recording, so the quality of our audio is a bit inconsistent, but the Talanoa is fire. All right, let's get into it. Talofalava, Patrick. Welcome to So What's Akin. We are so honored and humbled that you could join us for today for this exciting Talanoa. A rhythm that we seem to be adopting here at So What's Akin is uh, reading the formal bio, that you provided. And then, you know, we're more interested in the informal fluid nature of Talanoa. And so we would love if you could introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from, and some of your interests and passions. Sure thing. First of all, Brandon and Emily, a big ta'alofa'alama, ma'alofa'alama, a big fafetai, ma'alofa'alama, thank you for inviting me to be part of this Talanoa. It's an honor and my pleasure to be able to share, hopefully, some stories that might be of interest to yourselves and to your listeners. As your introduction kind of already sort of outlined, you know, I am currently a lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland here in Aotearoa. I'll be moving to the Global Studies Department in second semester, which is going to be interesting. I grew up here in South Auckland. I was born and raised here in Manurewa. Those of you who are familiar with Aotearoa and South Auckland in particular will know that this is a very Pacific heavy sort of area. And, you know, one of my main passions is, is, of course, trying to create space for more Pacific queer voices, especially here in Aotearoa, to be able to be forefronted in lots of different areas, including research and public sphere. So 
I guess there's lots to talk about and I'll just leave my introduction kind of shortened at this point and I'll let Brandon and Emily let the conversation sort of um, flow in the direction that you want to take us. So Marlo, again, for having me. Thank you. No, thank you so much for that. Yeah, I, I'm so fascinated just with you know, the resources we were compiling and just, you know, kind of learning more about you. For folks who don't know, as Patrick said, he's based in Aotearoa, I'm in Hawaii, and then Mele is in Australia. And so we haven't actually, I haven't met Patrick face to face. And so I'm just really excited for this conversation. I think one of the things that we love here at Salwatakin is, you know, like a genealogy of stories. And so it would make my day if you could just share a little bit about what it was like for you growing up in Aotearoa, um, navigating your childhood, adolescence, and then later what your journey into adulthood looked like. Sure. I guess I should start at the very beginning then, yeah? I was born here in South Auckland at Minimal Hospital to a solo mother. So here in back in the 1980s, my mom came over from Samoa. She was in a relationship with my father. They split before I was born. So mom was actually down in Christchurch, which is another city here in Aotearoa. In the South Island, it's very cold down there. When they split, she was pregnant with me and she moved up to Tamaki Makoto, which is Auckland, of course. And this was in the 1980s. She was a solo mother who had to raise me by herself. And so a lot of my childhood growing up in this part of, of Aotearoa was, you know, it was a difficult sort of childhood. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of resources. It was something that's quite uh, familiar to many people who grew up in this neighborhood. One thing that I was really grateful for was that despite um, being raised by a solo mother, I was raised by my mom's entire family, which included her extended family, which were not just people related to in terms of kinfolk, but also people within the community. And a lot of those people um, were whawhawhine. So my mum had a lot of whawhawhine who would come and stay with us, would help her out a lot, would take me to school. I would end up, you know, getting rides with a lot of my mum's friends and they would babysit me. And so that was kind of like the typical sort of environment that I grew up with here in Aotearoa. I went to school in South Auckland. I went to a school called De La Salle College, which is also a very well-known college here in Auckland for having a very high proportion of Pacific students. Growing up in South Auckland in the 1990s, there were a lot of sort of stereotypes around our neighbourhood that I also, myself and my colleagues and cohort members had to sort of contend with. A lot of it was around very negative stereotyping around our neighbourhood and our ethnicities, especially Pacific people. And growing up in that area at that time meant that there was a very specific kind of narrative that was always around us and followed us um, as we were going on our journeys in lots of different directions. And so that was a very sort of formative experience in my life, was knowing that anytime anything bad happened in New Zealand was related to crime or anything that was not necessarily positive was always associated with our neighbourhood. And so these are the sorts of narratives that kind of surrounded me as I moved ahead. And then I was lucky in the sense that despite, I would say, the relative challenges that I experienced and my cohort members experienced um, growing up in this part of the country, I was able to get through to university through the support of some very instrumental educators. In high school, I had a couple of sort of key teachers who really drove me towards making sure that I left high school with some sort of qualification. And I ended up going to university. And there is where I think I was able to connect with a lot of sort of young and upcoming queer Pacific folk. And this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, which is a weird for me to talk about now because it's almost been 20 years. But at that time, it was still quite rare to have Pacific queer presence at university. And having that experience was really important for me because I ended up in these interesting sort of representation roles and seeing that there weren't Pacific people, there weren't queer people in these spaces and 
it really sort of highlighted to me how we, although exist within Pacific communities here in Aotearoa and also in the Pacific, tend to be erased. And that was really kind of where my academic journey really began. So I'm not sure if that was what you were after, Brendan, but hopefully that gives you something to latch on to kind of develop the next part of your question. Yeah, no, I'm super grateful for that. I just found myself resonating with some of your story in terms of just being raised by a single parent and then, you know, the struggles in terms of just like social, economically. What I love though, and I I think I want to point on this if you're comfortable speaking on this. I know in the States, when we talk about like queerness, right, and queer, just like the queer experience, there's always this talk about like you have your family and you have your chosen family. I find that dialogue to be so fascinating. But and what I see in your in your story, right, is that I kind of in please correct me if it's wrong, but like an amalgamation of both experiences, right? Being surrounded by your mom's community, right? The Fafafine. I think that's so fascinating. And I'm wondering like, are there specific memories or experiences that were that stuck with you that you kind of carry? And if you would be willing to share some of those experiences, I think our audience would very much love to hear what, what that was. Oh, absolutely, Brendan, actually. I think that's one thing that kind of sets us apart as a community is that I do understand that for most, well not most, I think a lot of queer folk, chosen family is a really important part of experience and being able to find comfort and being able to find their way through, you know, very reactive kind of spaces to any form of queerness, right? But for Pacific peoples, and this is what I found like through my own experience is that you're right, that there is sort of that complexity where our family that's our chosen family also amalgamates with a lot of the time our actual, you know, blood kinfolk, because I think that there is something that's inherent to our cultures where queerness in the past, obviously this has changed because of the influence of colonialism and, you know, Christianity and so forth across the Pacific. But the fact that we have these indigenous terminologies, I think Emily already sort of mentioned the project that I'm working on, but these terms like mahu, wakaselewalewa, balopa, fakafafine, you know, sort of denotes this understanding that we should have around our communities being a lot more complex than just occupying marginal spaces which are disconnected from each other. Rather, I find that my experience sort of speaks to kind of that complexity where you can experience marginalization through your process of racialization and the ethnicity that you belong to, but also, you know, the same thing with being a queer person. But in the Pacific context, especially here in Aotearoa, for me, I grew up within a family where whawhine were not shunted and were not excluded. But then there was also something very specific about my story in the sense that a lot of the sort of the ways in which queer folk were integrated into our familial networks were was actually because of the fact that my mother was a solo mother, right? So she had sort of the social license, I would say, to be able to kind of welcome me in the full sense of what it means to be inclusive within a familial structure. And so in terms of personal experiences. There's so many memories I have. My uncle is also Papa Fine, so he has lived with us since I was young and he's a fashion designer. And back in the 90s, there used to be a whole slew of Samoan nightclubs that used to be all around Auckland City. And every single one of them would have a Papa Fine pageant, which were these like incredibly sort of elaborate events that would take place. Actually, around this time of year, it would always be around April, May, June. And it was kind of the circuit. And so we would always have so many Papa Fine would come over to our house to get sort of um, the addresses made and, you know, get some advice from my mother who was a fashion, what's well, sorry, the hairdresser. My, my uncle was a fashion designer and then I was the talent maker. So I was this young, you know, expressive young queer Samoan kid who was just so fascinated by lots of different performance cultures that came from outside the country. So I ended up giving sort of dance moves and helping to formulate talents for a lot of the contestants. And it was kind of our way of building community 
and our way of building sort of an outlet for the creativity and all of those things that, you know, that I think are inherent to our cultures and our peoples and the ways in which we communicate and connect with each other. You know, these were some of the things that I always remember when I was young, just having so many different who would come over and they would have huge parties as well. And also just, you know, my mom was really lucky in the sense that a lot of them would come back over years down the track. We wouldn't see them, but there would a lot of mom's fafafine friends who I, you know, would see back maybe three years earlier would drop by and they'd bring mom gifts just to check in on her. And it really was kind of an extension of the village. But what was interesting was the village was um, built and inclusive of Bafafine and queer folk within the community. So there was this kind of double life, I guess, I was having in terms of I would be connecting with my queer friends at school and at university, but then there was also the Fafafine community in which my family was already very well sort of embedded within. So yeah, it was when I think about it now, when you asked me that question, Brandon, I actually reflected just on it now at this very moment thinking, wow, actually that, that's really good sort of observation and I should probably reflect on that a little bit more. But yeah, hopefully that's what you were after, Brendan. Yeah, yeah, no, I just I'm so grateful that you shared some of that just sounds like a really beautiful childhood. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, there was like struggles and whatnot, but to be cultivated, right, in such a, an atmosphere where acceptance and love is just so abundant. I'm just really grateful for you sharing that, Patrick. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Patrick. It's again, I'm just so happy that we can share space and time um, through this digital conduit and hear your beautiful stories. As you were talking, I was thinking of what you said, where you touched on how your community, you know, this family that was built around you engage with like this performance culture as a way to like you know enact joy and celebrate one another and I just had these like really beautiful images running through my mind imagining like you as this talent maker right and you said your mom is a hairdresser and and your uncle is the designer and just like how beautiful that is as an extension and representation of our creativity as Pacifica peoples but also like how like this is a discussion that Brad and I were having with some friends in this part Last week, like how normal it is, you know, for us to be that creative as well at the same time. Like for us, it's like creativity is just life, right? Like it's just um, it's just how we express ourselves, and the way we express ourselves just happens to be very beautiful and very arresting and engaging and magnetizing. So that yeah, thank you so much for um sharing that. As I was also listening to you talking about this, like this culture of community and performance, um, I was thinking also about and I just have to bring your love for Mariah Carey because one of the way that I came across your work was through Twitter. I had seen you in, in the Twitter sphere and I'm tweeting and I read some of your articles that had been reshared and I noticed your your love and your passion for Mariah Carey and how amazing your memory was for all of her accolades and for um, her triumphs and her highs and her lows uh, as an artist and I'm thinking about in particular the moment 2020 where Mariah Carey liked one of your tweets. <laughs> and how you have that pinned to your pinned to your Twitter account, which I love so much. I think for me, like knowing that you're an academic, yes, but also that, you know, there are parts of your Twitter, your online presence where you share something so so personal and, and so meaningful for you as like your connection with Mariah Carey as an artist, for me is something that I really connect to because I think often in these online spaces, it's easy to kind of like um, box people in, right? And um, see just the academic 
academic or or see just like the person who's like the thought leader you know who's um who's wearing the badge not the badge but you know like wearing some kind of armor around them but for me the way you you talk about Mariah and, and your love for her is really personal and really beautiful and I was wondering if like if you would care to share like where where that came from like your love for Mariah and how it still managed to stay so strong over the years Absolutely. Have you got two hours? (laughs) (laughs) I wish we did, but give us what you've got. (laughs) Well, Emily, thanks very much for those points, because I think you've touched on a lot of things that matter to me. And one of them very much related to some of the problems I have with academia and the way it's sort of, especially the type of academia that's considered to be the premier or elite way of like producing and generating and disseminating knowledge. Because, you know, For all of us now, we're starting to kind of understand that these spaces around academia are performative spaces and they also are spaces in which power hierarchies are hidden, but they operate in the sense that we know that the way in which academia works is very much within this colonial framework. And what that does then is that it kind of sets up this intellectual elite who are supposedly, you know, the leaders and the people that we look up to as being the most knowledgeable. And I mean, I'm not saying that not the case for Pacific academics, because I think that is the case in, in the sense that we have really incredible thought leaders who help to develop, you know, these knowledge systems that challenging sort of the colonial frameworks in which the university sort of exists. But for me personally, I always love the idea of sharing who I am as a person, because for me, it's really important to demonstrate to all of our people that everyone has the potential to be an academic if they choose this life. It's not something that is far removed from people who grew up in my neighborhood, for example, who grew up loving Mariah Carey, who grew up loving Celine Dion and Whitney Houston, who grew up, you know, listening to urban and hip hop music because there's these images around what we consider to be an academic and, you know, respectability politics and so forth. And I think that works if you're Pakia or Balangi, but, you know, as a Pacific person, we know that you know, the real knowledge lies within our knowledge holders, within our communities. And so for me, it's really important that I always share parts of myself, which just allows other people to feel comfortable around somebody like me, because the title is rubbish. Like, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, all I did was I finished a PhD. I mean, I know that sounds like a a little bit dismissive of the achievement, but, you know, it's basically a research project. And our people do that every day. Our communities are involved in research and knowledge generation activities every day. So I think it's important that for we as specific academics need to also be accessible to our community members. So, you know, a lot of the times I'm like, please don't call me doctor, just call me Patrick, please. And if you really want to, you can call me Mariah, I do not mind. And so (laughs) that's the reason why I think it's important for me anyway, that's my social media engagement is real and reflective of who I am as a person. And the reason why I love Mariah so much, it's a really funny story. I think it started when I was maybe six years old, when Mariah had her first single come out. And I I just remember I was we used to have this show on TV here in New Zealand it was called RTR Countdown and it used to come on every Saturday I think around like five o'clock I think it was and they would have like the countdown of the top songs and the New Zealand charts and so forth and I was sitting in our living room I remember and just watching because I'm the youngest so I have some siblings who are older than me and they you know they were in their teen years while I was still younger kid preteen I guess and, and they were watching RTR Countdown and then this lady came on and she started singing this song and she had this beautiful girl 
yeah. And she was in this on the beach. It was raining. It was like black and white, kind of sort of like, I don't think it was black and white. You know, it, it wasn't color. And she was on the beach. And then she started singing this with this most majestic and angelic voice. And the song was Love Takes Time. And I was just like transfixed. And from there, I'd always loved singing. And that was the other thing. I would just try and emulate her singing, her, Whitney Houston, (laughs) Celine, and everybody else in that generation. And from there, I just really started to follow her music. And then I found out that she came from, you know, a background which was very unstable. Like, as loving as my background is, you know, it wasn't the most stable background, you know. And I hope that people listening don't think that I was trying to kind of make out that I had this perfect childhood because I did not have a very perfect childhood at all. She didn't have stability in her life, but she still kind of made it through. And then as her career developed and her music sort of shifted, I could see that from developing and some of the messages in her music I really connected with. And there were times in my life as I was growing up as a teenager, being a queer teenager in particular, it can be a very confusing and difficult sort of space to navigate. And some of her music was super important to me because it felt like when she would sing, she would be singing directly to me. And the thing is, you know, like Mariah talks about how her fans mean so much to her. And that was another reason why I connected with her. And so, yeah, there are a few things that I I wanted to kind of mention. But for me, I always wear my hat on my sleeve. I'm not the typical academic in the sense that, you know, I believe or I separate myself from, you know, or have a different identity, I guess, is what I mean. I carry my all my identities with me at one time in every space that I go into. So, you know, obviously there is a little bit of having to kind of code switch in different spaces. But, you know, if I'm in a white space, you'll definitely know that there's a specific person there, specifically a Samoan person there and somebody who's in love with Mariah Carey. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. I was finger snapping in the back the whole time you were talking. Absolutely. I think everything that you shared is just like, you know, it's important for us to have people. And and I think we all, you know, we do this automatically, but people who their lived experience mirrors us, but like at a distance, you know, because that creates room for us and our imaginations, you know, to bridge the gap and imagine what could be for ourselves, you know, seeing what, what those other people have made for themselves. And I remember around the time that we asked you if you would come on to the Sawata Kim podcast, you had started reading her biography, autobiography, which had just come out. I wanted to just segue to um, an article that you shared with us um, because you've shared so much about, you know, growing up in in South Auckland and, uh, you know, being Samoan and, and, and queer. The article that you shared with us, there were ghosts in this place growing up Samoan and queer in 1990 South Auckland. And this article is a really riveting personal reflection and where you share your coming of age story and in Auckland and if listeners have not read Patrick's article we'll um, include it in the resource link on our page but um, Patrick I'm really fascinated with this piece and have so many questions as does Brandon Um, in the introduction of the piece you write we as Pacific people accustomed to having our lives and experiences becoming their stories written about us without us and for someone else's consumption the orientalist brush that rendered us dusky maidens noble and ignoble savages also morphed us into capitalist fodder for New Zealand's colonial ambitions. We could spend the rest of the podcast yarning about this one paragraph, but curious, we are curious for those who haven't read the piece, like why was it important to stress this tension as a a queer Samoan man? 
Thanks, Emily, and thank you for engaging with the piece and the way that you have. You're right in the sense there's so many different things that we could discuss that comes up in this paragraph. But I think, you know, dealing with your questions specifically around why I felt it important to stress this tension, I think being queer and a Pacific person or an ethnic minority or members of multiple marginalized groups, you know, one of the most difficult things for us to kind of negotiate is understanding how we experience these marginalizations in multiple ways simultaneously and what does that mean in terms of how we can understand our experience but I think you know for Pacifica people Pacific people here in Aotearoa you know the way in which we were implicated originally by the New Zealand settler colonial state was that was because that you know we were brought in to do what I call the three d's right the dirty the dangerous and the demeaning jobs that New Zealanders at the time didn't want to do and so this is the I guess the genealogical birth of our communities that are, you know, later became Pacifica here. And the reason why I really wanted to kind of emphasize, you know, the fact that when we talk about Orientalism and we talk about the ways in which our region was colonized is that, you know, New Zealand's colonial capitalist ambitions were not able to be realized without having discourse of us being easily exploitable and minimized, you know, in the pages of books that were written by white academics before, you know, our communities were set up here. And so for before I even wanted to discuss the queer part, I thought it was important to kind of acknowledge the Pacific history part for Aotearoa, because one thing that I think we don't well, I wouldn't say we don't, I guess we haven't really spoken about much, is sort of that tension between we as Pacific people here in Aotearoa as part of New Zealand settler colonial states' ambition to grow in terms of its capitalist and neoliberal sort of agenda versus the fact that we are kinfolk to Tangata Whenua. And so, you know, none of us here, well, the majority of us who are here are not here at the behest of our kinfolk, but rather here at the behest of our settler colonial governments, right? And so that's the reason why I felt like the beginning of this sort of piece, I needed to acknowledge the complexity that kind of exists in me just being here or just me sort of positioned in the 1990s where the piece sort of kind of begins. But there's a longer genealogy which stretches past, you know, our initial sort of imbrication within New Zealand, which really took off between the 1960s and 70s, I guess. But, you know, the reason why we were able to be part of that is because we had all of these people like Gauguin and we had James Cook and come and all of these, you know, European explorers come through and paint these pictures of us as being, you know, ready to be sort of, what's the word that I'm looking for, ready to be colonized and used. And so, yeah, that's, I guess, what the the paragraph is trying to get at. That really was not an eloquent answer, but (laughs) hopefully you can get something out of that, Emily. No, that was great. That was, you said it just as it was meant to be said. (laughs) No, it was beautiful. Yeah, if um, if I could chime in just for a little bit. Patrick, you said a lot of good things. (laughs) And I I really want to dig in looking at my notes right now. I think uh, what I appreciated about the piece and the way that you crafted it, right, is, and you you kind of mentioned it, right, like naming these multiplicities of oppressions, right, and how we kind of navigate these spaces, how we occupy these multiple identities. I I really appreciate the way that you articulated it. I, I can't wait for this episode to go on so I can go back and listen to it and actually like look at the transcript. But I I found myself resonating with a lot of the points that you were making, right? So just like questioning settler colonialism. For myself, I'm a settler here on Kanaka Moli land. And 
I think as I was, you know, developing my own social conscious and developing racial analysis, all those other things, I began to like ask the question of like, what does it mean to be a good settler? <laughs> or like, what does it mean to be a good guest? Because as you said, right, like we are kinfolk with Kanaka Maori here, but because of the way that colonialism operated, because of migration patterns, my family is here and I am here and I was born and raised here, but I am not of this Aina. And so I'm um, just really asking that question of like, how do I be in solidarity with the Kanaka Maori community, but also seeking liberation for our own Pacifica folks? Because as it stands, context of Hawaii, right, in terms of just like, socioeconomic and political oppression, right? Like we are on the lowest scales with Kanaka Maoli. And so like, how do we collectively kind of advance, but then also just be yielding to Kanaka Maoli in terms of just whether it's sovereignty movements or just other liberation movements that's happening within the indigenous peoples of this land. So I really appreciate the way you framed it and I can't wait to go back and like read it. <laughs> the second, the, the question that I want to go into, I know this is kind of like like a weird shift, but I saw in your bio that you lived in South Korea for nine years. As someone who just like, I have an affinity for Korean culture. One of my mentors is this amazing woman who's from South Korea. I, I'm so fascinated. And I just want to ask like, what drove you there? Why did you choose to live there for nine years? What was it like being Satmon in South Korea? What did you learn? And then lastly, then this is kind of facetious, but what was your go-to like Korean food? <laughs> very good question. Very important question. Yes, yes, I agree with you, Emily. Yeah, it's interesting because when I moved to South Korea all those years ago, I didn't think it was such a big deal. Um, and that's probably because I didn't really do much of my research. So um, this was also pre-Hallyu. So this was pre-Korean wave days. So you know, K-pop hadn't taken off outside of East Asia at all. I think it had barely taken off outside of Korea at that time. And so, you know, what actually drove me to South Korea, I, speaking to a lot of people now, they assume certain things because I lived there for so long. They assume that I was a big K-pop fan or, or a big K-drama fan or whatever. But that's not the case at all. The reason why I went to South Korea is because it's the same story for many of people here in my neighborhood is that I went for a job. Like I graduated university and, you know, it was difficult for me to get into fields that I really wanted to be working in. I was working in a role that I probably shouldn't have been working in. It was one of those, just take the job when you finish university. And I was lucky in the sense that my friend, who is Tongan, she and I um, had been friends for quite a while. Been, we'd worked together at the university advocating for Pacific students in various roles. There was a recruiter who was of Cook Islands Maori heritage, and she was married to a Korean. And so at this point, Korea was going through, I would say, sort of the beginnings of its English um, boom. Maybe it was kind of in the middle of it, you know, because Korea is always about five or six years behind Japan. So Japan's sort of English boom was starting to come down, and Korea was, was going to become like the hot sort of destination for people who wanted to go and teach English. And so this particular recruiter, because she was a Cook Islander, she came to the university, she looked for Pacific students because she felt like it was important that we as New Zealand citizens also shouldn't be overlooked, right? And so she looked specifically for Pacific people who'd be interested to go and do sort of like a year over there. And I'd finished university, I graduated, and just like everybody else, I had a student loan and, you know, my family didn't have a lot of money. So I know there were a lot of people who were over there in Korea with me who were working there and sending money home. So it was kind of interesting when we talk about remittances, for example, to the islands, that sort of this new, I, would, I wouldn't say new, I'd just say kind of like an extension of kind of that network was taking place. And also I want to kind of preface a lot of the things that I say right now 
is something that isn't really well understood in our literature in Pacific studies because transnational Pacific identities beyond sort of the host home binary around migrations is still kind of underdeveloped. So this is another area that I'm really interested in developing in terms of research. But anyway, back to the story. So that was the reason why I went over originally. And so I stayed there for the first three years I was working and I was having a wonderful time when I first got there. Oh, actually, I should probably tell you what happened the when I first got there, I first got there in 2008, had done no research. The only thing I knew was that South Korea's capital city was Seoul because Seoul hosted the Olympics in 1988. And growing up in New Zealand in social studies class, they used to make you memorize all of the host cities of the Olympics. And that was the only thing I knew about Seoul and South Korea when I got there. And the first six, seven months, I absolutely hated it. I couldn't speak any Korean because I hadn't done any research. (laughs) Did not know anything about Korean culture. So I kind of learned on the fly. And then I think maybe it was like the end of the seventh month where I was like, actually, this is kind of really cool. Maybe I should just um, stay here a little bit longer. So I did, renewed my contract, worked for another year, worked for another year, and I realized it'd been three years. And the whole point was just one year of working, go back to New Zealand and get back into graduate school. So after three years of teaching ABCs, because that's what we used to call each other, we used to call each other ABC teachers, my friends and I were like, I feel like we need to go back and do some study. And so I was about to come home to New Zealand and I contacted my university, who I work for now, about doing my master's. And one of the professors said to me, why would you come back to New Zealand? You're doing international relations. Why don't you see if you can go to school in South Korea? But I did. And I was lucky that I got into Seoul National University and I did my master's degree there. And then during that time, I got myself a Korean boyfriend and he was Korean American. And of course, in Korea, if if you are male, you have to serve in the military. It's one of the constitutional duties. There's four apparently in the Korean constitution. One of them is if you're a man, you have to serve in the military. And he didn't want to do that. And I said to him, well, then you can go back to America. And I was just finishing my master's at the time. And then his idea was that I would join him in the United States. And that's the reason why I went over there for my PhD. But it was really funny because as soon as I got there, we broke up. So (laughs) in any case, that was sort of the reason why I stayed in Korea for so long. But what was it like being Samoan in South Korea? Oh, let me tell you, it was very, very, very interesting. As much as I love South Korea, no society is perfect. And South Korea has, well, I would say it's improved a lot now, but back in 2008, 2009, when I was first there, there was absolutely no grammar around race in South Korea, although there was very much a preference for lighter skinned people. And so I would always have to sort of contend with some interesting questions. We would call them microaggressions, I guess, in our places, but they would be like, oh, you're from New Zealand. Why are you brown? You know, like those sorts of questions. And I would have, one time I was at the the bus stop, I remember, and I was waiting for my bus and I was sitting outside and this Korean Joshi kind of like old man came up to me and he grabbed my nose randomly and started pushing my nose and said to me, oh, no more meaning like, wow, it's so big. (laughs) This is the sort of stuff happening in Korea. But you know, and having said that though, like I, one thing that I loved about, I love about being Samoan 
you know, and there are some things that I don't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. One thing I absolutely love about being Samoan is that, like, no matter where we end up, we always find each other. And so we ended up finding, like, developing our own community. And so, you know, we would have our own sort of celebrations. We even created a cultural night, which we would host every year. We created our own organization. It was literally trying to set up our own sort of Pacific community in Aotearoa and uh, in Aotearoa, sorry, in South Korea. But what was interesting is that this community of Pacific people that we were developing in South Korea all came through Aotearoa. So there's kind of this interesting discussion that needs to be had now around how we understand mobilities beyond the edges. Because, you know, some of the most beautiful writing in Pacific studies in particular by Teresia and, you know, talks about the edges and how we engage the edges and talks about sort of, you know, the generative space, what it, you know, generatively what it means to be positioned on the edges of our ocean. You know, but I guess with our generation, there's a lot of us now who grow up in diaspora who then develop new offshoots and new new sort of paths and pathways. And so that's kind of what living in South Korea sort of taught me is that our world is now moving beyond just the ocean. And so we have to be cognizant of that and think about, you know, what it means to be a Pacific person within this context. Because we were also building sort of sort of coalitions amongst other Pacific peoples who were there from other diasporas. Like we had a couple who came from Hawaii who joined in and then we had to relate, learn how to relate to each other, even though we were both Samoan or we were all Tongan. And then same thing, we had a few come from Australia. So it was a really interesting space to be in because I think it's an exciting kind of new way of understanding our Pacific subjectivities and how it shifts. And your final question, Brandon, sorry, this has been a really long answer. My go-to Korean food of choice. Now, I love Korean food. I just love food. So it depends on the season. I would say during winter, it was definitely samgyetang, which is kind of the, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with samgyetang, but samgyetang is the sort of like it's a, a, a small chicken stuffed with in, this, in, in a soup and it's kind of stuffed with ginseng and all sorts of goodness inside and ginger, the sauce is so beautiful. And then of course, I love takalbi, which is the spicy fried chicken, I guess. And then of course, kimchi chige, which is the national lunch of Korea, <laughs> which is basically kimchi stew with pork and stuff inside it. And then, of course, all of the street food. That was one thing I loved about Korea was just kintopoki, the spicy kind of rice cake snacks. And I'd walk around the markets and, and so forth. Yeah, so this we could talk about my time in Korea for many, many, for many, 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 many hours, but uh, I'll stop there. Oh, I'm so hungry now. <laughs> oh. I low-key pitched it to Amelia when we were trying to talk about what Sawa to Kin was and just be like, oh, can we do an episode where it's just like mukbang and just eat Korean food? <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I really, really, really love that. I also, I even the way that you're telling the story, right? Like I felt very engaged and story about, you know, the older person. I was just like, oh God, did he really just grab your nose? <laughs> yeah. And then also like, I think the things that you posed, right? Really good questions. You know, again, similarly, like I think about when I hear your experience in, in Korea and I think about like my experience in New York City, you know, there was a Pacific community there and it, they were there for very like niche reasons, right? Like if they didn't go there for grad school or for school, like I did, they were artists, they were designers, fashion designers, they were musicians, they were dancers. And so yeah, the particularities of like how our migration stories like happened and then also just relating to folks from different parts of the world. Uh, we had folks from, I mean, Utah who by way of like Tonga, we had folks from New Zealand, we had folks from 
just like like you know the bay area and stuff and so even though we're both all pacific right it's just a different lived experience and like what does it mean to be pacific here in new york city it was a really interesting thing to try to navigate but that's why yeah i appreciate you sharing about korea and if you're ever in hawaii or if ever in uh, new zealand can we please go get some korean food really quickly too because i didn't mention just i didn't mention some of the really great experiences i had in south korea with korean people i think one thing that i also learned about south korea and korean culture is that there are uh, so many parallels between the way in which they understand structures with our own and so i i feel like there's a lot of separation here in aotearoa anyway between our asian communities and our pacific communities which to me is really interesting because when i was in south korea i found it easier to speak korean than my pakia colleagues because there was you know the pronunciation for me was easy right because of the the vowel sounds that we have in korean and the vowel sounds that we have in samoan and then also just kind of the ways in which we understand respect for our elders and also just respect for space and understanding how to you know to be a, a good relative right these are the things that i connected with my korean co-teachers a lot like one thing that i learned is that once you become part of you know a familial circle or like a really close knit friend group amongst Korean community groups or work groups or whatever they take care of you so much so you know there was that old man who grabbed my nose but i mean i tell you there were so many of my korean friends who treat me like their family who sometimes i would go to their houses and be like man it's just like being in the same one house it's just y'all eat different food <laughs> so yeah i just wanted to kind of also share that as well Yeah, no, I appreciate you elevating your experiences with Korean folks cuz yeah, I think Koreans I feel like definitely I can vibe with. They just don't have to throw down in the kitchen. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I prefer uh, Korean food over someone food. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I definitely hear what you're saying in terms of like the connections like linguistically, right? And then I'm also just thinking like in terms of coloniality, right? Like the way that South Korea and the historical, you know, relations with the US, right? And just like what militarism looks like there. I'm not too keen on I'm not too knowledgeable about the specific specificities of South Korea, but I know like imperialism still has a grasp over them historically and then possibly contemporarily as well, but yeah. Amelia, did you have any questions? Or? Yeah, oh my gosh, so I was just like smiling in my corner over here listening to you speak Patrick because you're such a you're such a great storyteller and I was so enamored listening to you talk about your time in South Korea and I personally also am very very interested in South Korea because I love obviously like Korean dramas like I I love watching Korean television because I work in storytelling and I also love Korean skincare. I'm really fascinated by the 12-step process more so as like um not necessarily in terms of like the amount of products that go into having this you know 12-step skincare process every day but what it means to take time for yourself every day and spend time with your skin as you know as self-care as as healing as um you know starting and ending your day with for a moment with yourself that's a very brief but small access point for me that has um led me to be more interested in and of course like to know more about things like what you were speaking about like how like the similarities in linguistics um the similarities in customs and in respect understanding relationality like for all of that for me really resonates as something that i think is really beautiful and worth investigating further 
Because, yeah, these obviously we all know these like colonial boundaries that have been drawn between the Pacific and Asia. They're just that, they're colonial boundaries. And if we look beneath the surface actually and have a conversation with our kin, we, we realise that actually there's so much more to celebrate through our connection and similarities than there is in our differences. And, you know, that's like, that's a really cool thing, you know, like, but, and, you know, we can do that without erasing the nuanced uniqueness of each of our communities, you know, so... I was listening to you and I was like, damn, that sounds so cool. I like can't wait to go and learn more about South Korea. But I also was thinking, you know, like what you were saying in terms of like the Samoans finding each other in South Korea, but specifically um, the diaspora that had come from uh, New Zealand and what that experience was like and how you had to relate to other Pacifica people while you were in Korea and find a language for engagement. That was really fascinating to me. And I'm wondering how like if, you yeah interested in sharing with us how that was similar or dissimilar to your time in Washington when you do your PhD did you because the obviously the Pacifica communities there are much more established and you know a, a bigger did you have like find many similarities in your experience with South Korea or was it just completely different that's a really good question, Emily. Thank you. I would say that they were very different experiences and because of, you know, the nuances and sort of the context in which I was living. So when I went to South Korea, I was living as, as a teacher. So I had a lot of freedom there. So I had my salary that would come in every month, which meant that I could travel all around South Korea. But when I went to the United States, I was kind of bounded by these immigration rules, which meant that I was only able to live off of my stipend, which um, Brandon, I'm pretty sure you can attest to, is pretty mean especially in a, a city like Seattle. So it really limited what I could do when I was in Seattle. So I was cognizant that there was a big Samoan community in Washington state, but I didn't really get a chance to connect with anybody because everybody was living in Tacoma when I was like in Seattle city. <laughs> so it was really difficult for me to sort of connect with the, the local community in Washington state. I did join one of the organizations that the University of Washington had, which was Pacific or Poly they call it, I think it was a Polynesian club, I think is what it was called. So interesting terminology. Of course, we all know that different terms mean different things in different contexts. But yeah, it was interesting because I realized that the diasporic experience in the United States was very different to the diasporic experience of being Samoan in New Zealand. So for example, you know, and in South Korea, because all of the, the Samoans who I connected with in South Korea had come from New Zealand. And in fact, it was really funny. I met this one Samoan girl at netball. So there was a netball in South Korea. It was it was interesting. Anyway, I saw her at netball and then I asked her her last name. She asked me mine and then I found out that she was in the same class as my older sister back in New Zealand. So those sorts of connections would happen very much serendipitously in South Korea because of the fact that almost everyone had come through the New Zealand immigration system. Because the other thing I, I think it's important for us to kind of be aware of is that um, these visas that you go on as a teacher in South Korea are only available to specific countries. And these countries, what I call the three W's, they're, they're white, they're Western, and they're wealthy. And, you know, they're basically just the legacies of the settler colonial state set up during the British Empire, as well as the US. So it's just New Zealand, Australia, the United States, Canada, South Africa, the UK and Ireland. So those are the only seven countries who can access these visas into South Korea. So then it creates sort of a very specific type of Pacific person that can be there. And then, of course, the stories that I was hearing in Washington state were really different from people 
a lot of the Samoans that I would meet there, a lot of them struggled with the language because none of them had ever been to Samoa before. Meanwhile, here in New Zealand, I would be hard pressed to find one of my friends who hasn't been to Samoa before or can't speak a little bit of the language. And so also the fact that we had very different accents. <laughs> I was carrying the, the imprint of the New Zealand accent. And, you know, that kind of sort of demonstrates, I think, in a very sort of minuscule way the difference in the direction and the experiences. So I found it difficult, I guess, to be honest, to create sort of those connections because I do feel like the US, when I was there, there were certain social customs that you grow up with in the United States that I didn't understand. And so I struggled to kind of come to terms with that. But when I was in South Korea, because I was with people from New Zealand, it was real simple. An example I'll give you is, you know, things like, Brendan, y'all have that, what's it called? The app Venmo, right? And so... (laughs) was in, in the US, it was really interesting for me because I felt like there was a stronger sense of transactionalism in the sense that if we would go out somewhere, people would be just pulling out their phones saying, hey, how much do I owe you for this? Do I owe you this? Blah, blah, blah. Like, I should contribute this or you owe me that. That doesn't happen <laughs> amongst um, my friends here because I guess, you know, the, the social custom and it's similar in Korea. The social custom is not to talk about things like that. It's kind of just like if somebody does something for you, it's an expression of their aloha for you. And you don't you don't come back and say, like, well, how much did that cost sort of thing? And that took me a while used to because I understand the context was very different in the U.S. Um, that I was I was working with. And yeah, these were the, the sorts of things, also the types of music <laughs> that people were listening to. I was very surprised that no one loved Mariah as much as I did. <laughs> no, in general, you know, the reference points were different. Like for us, you know, in New Zealand, there's a lot of sort of cross-fertilization between, you know, Maori and Pacific. And then that was definitely not something that I saw as strong in the United States in terms of like the cross-fertilization between Indigenous communities and Pacific diaspora communities. I don't know if that's, and this was in Seattle, so, you know, this shouldn't be taken as a representative of everything in the United States, of course. But yeah, so Korea actually was easier for me. And it's funny because when I went back, because what I did is I did a transnational study for my dissertation. So I was looking at the coming out experience for Korean gay men based in Seattle in Seoul. And this was very much connected to my own experience with my Korean boyfriend, who was a who was going to be my fiance. And then one day decided that we should just break up and he was going to get married to a woman. And this kind of sort of drove the research because I was like, I don't understand. How does this happen? What's going on here? Anyway, And so because of that experience, I had to go back to South Korea after I finished my qualifying examinations in Seattle. And so when I went back, it was so interesting. I landed back in in Seoul and I felt like I was at home. It just really felt like America was the place that was very distant and disconnected to me as opposed to Asia, as opposed to South Korea, as opposed to Seoul. I just got off the plane and I was like, yes, I'm home. And just, you know, off I went. And every time I'd go back to Seattle, I'd just be like, ugh. I can't believe I'm here. (laughs) What am I doing here? So it was really interesting because, you know, I had this feeling or I had this kind of suspicion that I would arrive in America and be like, oh, this is totally fine. Everyone speaks English. Like, you know, I'll totally be able to adjust really well. But that's not what I found at all. I found it much more difficult to adjust in the US than I did in South Korea. But then also the fact that I was in South Korea for nine years might have made a difference. Well, seven before I went back for the following two years. Yeah. I love the way you tell stories. Yeah. (laughs) just thinking about like yeah right like the united states and you know i think a lot of questions are a lot of conversations that emele and i and other pacifico folk by the way we're we're very active on clubhouse y'all so feel free to catch us there if you want to but we talk about how pacifico is not a monolith right and i I think you prefaced that right by saying 
you were situated in Seattle and that, you know, it's a very unique experience. But I resonate with what you're saying. Like, even for me growing up in Hawaii, right, a colony of the United States and going to the continental U.S., it was a different experience. And with the Venmo question, the Venmo subject, I very much felt uncomfortable (laughs) with Venmo because, like you said, right, the cultural protocol is, you know, if someone just does it for you, then you just accept it, you receive it. And like, I was very much practicing that with other folks. And I realized like, wait a minute, this is, there's an imbalance here because I'm operating out of this, this understanding of sharing space, <laughs> but I'm also dishing out all this money and y'all aren't reciprocating. <laughs> and so I had to like quickly adjust and, you know, acclimate to that. But yeah, I love, I love what you were sharing. Also, I low key, like, again, I, you know, we're, we're muting the mics just because um, we don't want like feedback, but Again, I gasped and I was just like, I kind of want the tea on (laughs) the boyfriend and the research, but I want to honor your privacy so we don't have to go there. And like I give lectures about how lived experience is so important for us to acknowledge. And when you have these experiences that are so jarring, they can spark research ideas. And what's wrong with being honest about how your research developed in the first place? I always tell people, it's like, it was my relationship breakup that led me to my PhD topic. If it wasn't for that, I would have done a completely different research topic. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that because like what you were mentioning earlier in terms of just navigating like graduate school or higher academia, like it's so disembodied, I feel like, right? And then disembodied in a way where like, it's just very focused on like the intellectual capacities of it all, right? Like what can you research? What can you do? I think for me, I felt very unsettled while I was in school. And so I appreciate you, just the transparency of it all, right? Like you speak from a place of lived experience and like that was the the catalyst for your research as much as I would love the tea, but I'm going to give it over to Emile. Emile, do you want to ask any questions? Yeah, no, I think uh, what you were saying, yeah, absolutely rings true for me just in listening to how you tell stories and like you said, how you personalize it, right? Like for me, I work in the performing arts and a sessional lecturer at a performing arts university and it's very much the opposite where everything is embodied practice and the conversations that I'm championing with my students and with the curriculum is packing what it means to to be embodied, to be in spaces and and tell stories, you know, that are your own or other people's stories, what what the politics of that are. But as a student, you know, someone who's, who's, who's studying, I'm still wrestling with like how we in the academic spaces bring the personal in and use that as a way to change the way that not only we engage with the not only the way that we engage with the stories that we're telling and the communities that we're yeah reaching out to through our research or through our practice but uh how we how we tell those stories right like how do we make the telling of these stories embodied how do we respect and bring to life and invoke the beauty of how we relate to each other in the way that we express these stories so and i can feel that i very much feel that through listening to you talk patrick and how personal it is and how much respect you have for the people that that you work with in the communities and that you have uh have engaged with and your personal story, of course, like how that led to your research. So I'm thinking like the Manalangi 
project, right? I'd love for us to, to talk about that a little bit because I've, I've seen it online and you have something upcoming recently down in, down in Wellington. And so you're the principal investigator for the, the Manalangi Aotearoa Pacific Rainbow LGBTIQA plus MVPFAFF Health and Wellbeing Project. According to these called Mana at the Heart of Pacific Rainbow Health Project, Manalangi is a project which aims to redress this impact of stigma on the health and well-being of the Pacific Rainbow community in Aotearoa, New Zealand. There's so much in that and it's such important work and I guess I just would love to know like what this project means for you in terms of from your hopes for where it will go and your personal investment in it. Yeah, thank you, Emily. This is obviously, this this project has taken over sort of my research life at the moment, and I'm very happy and honoured to be able to lead this project. You know, you've kind of described what the goal of the project is, which is about trying to use research as a way in which we can develop better interventions that help to optimise the health and well-being of Pacific Rainbow communities. And personally, for me, it's it's obviously it's a very personal sort of project. And a lot of it comes back to the story that I told at the very beginning, which is my childhood and growing up here in Aotearoa and within Pacific communities and seeing the contributions that a lot of our queer folk who use different terminologies to sort of denote their identity and seeing that their stories were never reflected in sort of the meta-narratives around Pacific communities here in Aotearoa. I think there's been a great push and a wonderful sort of success from a lot of our storytellers here in Aotearoa as academics to kind of bring Pacific narratives back into the New Zealand story. But within that, my experience is that Pacific queer peoples tend to be erased. And so there are a couple of goals that this project is trying to make. The first for me, obviously, is the because it's a health and well-being project. You know, the main goal is to identify, first of all, the size of our community. We don't have any statistics around the size of Pacific Rainbow communities here in Aotearoa. And also sort of examine, and this is what Brandon kind of touched upon a little bit earlier, what the impact of having those intersecting intersecting marginalizations has on our communities. But then sort of like the second goal, which I'm really, really sort of, I shouldn't say more excited about, I definitely am quite excited about is the opportunity to document the stories of our communities. Because what I found is that there are now my mum's generation, my grandparents' generation. So within those different generations, there were, of course, queer leaders within the Pacific communities here in Aotearoa. But these stories are missing and there's this kind of criticality now that we need to make sure that before the next generation begins to pass on, that we do honour them by bringing them back into, you know, the official narrative that's documented in places like Te Papa, the National Museum of New Zealand, which is the reason why I wrote that piece specifically was so that experience is there. And so what we're going to do over the next three years, at the moment we have community consultations that are going on. So I applied for this funding when I came back from South Korea. I'd finished my PhD, I came back, I had a postdoc, and I went and spoke to some of the leaders that are here within Pacific queer communities. And I asked them, hey, where's the latest statistics and data on the health and well-being status of our Pacific Rainbow communities? And they all said to me, there was none. And so I thought to myself, well, that's no good. <laughs> We've been here for quite a long time. And I've seen a lot of Pacific queer artists now become part of like the image that gets portrayed around you know Pacific communities here in New Zealand but also like you know some incredibly talented artists and important people globally such as Yukihihara who's now going to represent New Zealand at the Venice Biennale 
Where's her story? I mean, her art's there, but, you know, her contributions to her communities have been sort of kind of left behind. And there's nothing, no one's documented anything about that story that I told you earlier around all of the beauty pageants. And also no one sort of have documented the labor, the contributions that our hairdressers and our garment creators who tend to all be fafafina in the Samoan community. I've seen them backstage at the Miss Samoa. So you have them backstage beautifying all the contestants who then go on and take all of this sort of national sort of pride and they receive all of this adoration. Yet it's their chaperones, it's their designers who sit backstage, right? So the whole point of the project is A, of course, get more data. For me, it's also about trying to validate and make sure that our communities are not forgotten and their contributions are not forgotten. Because as we know, if things are not documented and things are not acknowledged and things are not passed on generationally, that, that, you know, people's contributions can easily be twisted or can be just completely forgotten. And also, I just really want to push back against this whole pathologizing of queer communities being deviant when there are spaces in which we choose to disrupt the spaces, but then there are also spaces that have been created off the back of our labor and that needs to be acknowledged as well. So again, I talked around in multiple circles, but this project means so much to me. Community consultations. So what we've done is that when I went to HRC, I said to HRC, if we're going to do this, HRC stands for the Health Research Council of New Zealand. I said to them, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this the right way. I'm going to do this the Pacific way and I'm going to take every part of this project to the community and to get their feedback and to get their input. So before, so the the project is multi-methods, meaning that we will have a survey that will go live, but the survey is what we're writing right now. And we're taking the survey to community members across both mortals. So we started in Dunedin or Otepoti last week. On Wednesday, we're going to Tokoroa. And then when we come back from Tokoroa, we're going to Christchurch. We come back from Christchurch, we're going to Whangarei, and then we come back from Whangarei, we're going down to Gisborne and then to Wellington. Then we'll come back up to Hamilton, and then we're going to end here in Auckland, where where the largest Pacific population is. But the idea of starting at the bottom and working our way back up to the top, kind of, again, trying to decenter sort of the powerhouses or the centres of Pacific population so that we can get as much broad sort of perspectives and be as inclusive as possible as we move with the project. So I'm taking all of this with my research team, telling people, like, this is what we think based on prior research, tell us, is this what you need to be able to advocate for your communities? And then next year, we're going to be doing the documentation of individual narratives. And again, we'll be traveling and hopefully, fingers crossed, we're in talks with a major New Zealand institution around having an exhibition at the end. So if I can hopefully confirm that in the next few months, to me, this project is definitely something that is very close to my heart. And I hope that, you know, we can execute it in a way that is mana enhancing, which is why we call the project the Manalangi project. Wow such important work that you're doing Patrick and the Manalangi project it sounds like it's yeah it's doing exactly what it needs to do and serving those communities and keeping them at the forefront but also you know like as a foundational reminder of why you're there is like I can feel that I can really feel the drive you know and the love that you have for the Pacific Rainbow community and and you know where the places that you're taking it and I yeah I'm really looking forward to to seeing how um 
how your consultations go, like what comes of that. And then when you go into the next stage of documenting those stories and also I'm like touching all the wood around me and crossing all my fingers and toes for um, this exhibition to come through because that that outcome, that celebration, that unapologetic, we're here and, you know, we're amongst you and we're contributing, as you said, you know, like we're, we're part of a communities have always been, I think is, you know, that would be really, really beautiful to see. I heard you say that you're going up to Whangarei and Whangarei is my hometown actually. My sister's still up there in Whangarei so shout out to all my fam in Whangarei when you go up there. Just even just like the narrative you said of how we were traveling from the bottom all the way up to the top sounds really really beautiful and I can just only imagine how amazing that trip is going to be and the people that you're going to meet and the stories that you're going to hear. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And is there somewhere that people can follow and and find more information about the Manalangi project? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is basically manalangi.org. And also one thing that we're committed to is, of course, sharing transparently our process, which means that we're also making everything that we find in the research process accessible to everybody else. So we've created site, a repository of sort of the resources that we're finding. And we're just leaving it there for people to anyone who's interested in learning more about our communities, you know, the research, obviously it's not definitive. It's kind of ongoing in terms of how we're developing it, but anything we're using, anything we're finding, we're putting it in the repository. It's open access for anybody to use. And you can find it on mananangi.org as well. And so, and again, in this project, I think I just wanted to point out very quickly is that we've been very clear that Although this is focused on the needs of Pacific Rainbow communities, we understand that as Pacifica Rainbow peoples, that we are embedded within communities and families who are supportive, who love us, who care about us and want us to succeed. So we are totally, you know, it's not just us speaking to rainbow peoples. We want our allies there. We want our families there. And so we just had our first consultation in Otepoti, Dunedin, on Friday. And, you know, we had a lot of allies show up and it was beautiful. People, you know, really just wanted to show their support, but in the end really participated actively in the Talanoa, talking about, you know, some questions that they were unsure of and how can they support their their queer family members more and, you know, what sort of things they wanted to know about our community. It was really helpful for us because there's no data out there. We basically are creating a new data set. And so, you know, I asked people, I said, look, if you only had three questions that you could know the answer to about Pacific communities in Aotearoa, what would those three questions be based on these thematics that we've identified from prior health research? And the conversation was beautiful. It went on and on and on and on and on, <laughs> much longer than it was supposed to. But yeah, I just want to acknowledge, you know, the project sounds amazing. I've never heard anyone speak of research in the way that you are describing it, right? Like it doesn't even seem like it is academic work. It's it's necessary work. It's community organizing. It's it's so fascinating to me. And as someone who's like been in academia and just like really taxed out, it's very invigorating for me to hear how you're going about your research and how what your work is. I also just appreciate that you, you know you're you're taking the approach this very specific pedagogical epistemological approach, right? In terms of just rooting it in these values instead of you know like other counterparts uh, like Balangi folk. I think what I respect there's an accountability to a community. Uh, and then there's also just a lot of transparency. And then in the end, when you brought up the repository, right, there's accessibility to your research. I just thank you. Thank you for just sharing all of that. That's such a beautiful model for myself and for folks who are considering going back into academia. I had a question here and I just I don't know if 
I'm trying to think if this is like a good question to ask, but like for myself, you know, I work at the intersections of just like theology, Christianity, faith, spirituality, and identity. And in the circles that I kind of walk into, right, I think a lot of Pacifica folks are always struggling with identity and as is everyone else, right? Like, I think that's, you know, a universal experience, but, you know, just listening to you talk in this brief, you know, hour and listening to you share these stories. I just, I think I'm so fascinated with the person that you are or the person that I got a glimpse of. I I guess the word that I want to lean into is just like wholeness, right? I'm just curious for yourself, you know, what does wholeness mean to you? What does it mean to stand confidently in the, I guess, in the tradition or the, the the whole, uh, I don't know how to communicate this. (laughs) So sorry, but like, what does it mean to be fully yourself in spaces, even despite having these like multiple identities that I guess there is tension in the spaces that you occupy, right? What does it mean for you to, I guess, yeah. And then, I mean, the other question too, like as a liberationist, like I'm always thinking about the future for our peoples. And so what does that look like for you? What does liberation mean to you? What is your ideal hope for folks in our community and especially for the rainbow community for Pacifico folks? That's not a difficult question at all, Brandon. (laughs) No, I I really appreciate you bringing this sort of question to me right now at the end of Talanoa because I think it speaks to kind of what I have come to learn, I guess, across my short 37 years in life is that it took me a while to come back and be confident as a Pacific person, as a queer Pacific person, and as a queer Pacific academic who is out to the whole world, to the whole academy, and to the entire community. You know, the question for me, what really sort of shifted my thinking, sorry, about what wholeness meant to me was when I realized that the pursuit of whatever it was that I was looking for when I was a lot younger and not aware of all of these things is that to be whole as a Pacific person, I really feel it comes down to the quality of your connections. It's genealogy. It's understanding that your mana as a person meets the mana of your your colleagues. It meets the mana of your of your kinfolk, of your ancestors. And to me, the focus is on that connection and the focus is on how we can support everybody in being able to live a life that is fulfilling, that is sustainable, that is free of anxiety, which is through free of all of these issues that, you know, modern society has kind of thrown at us, then, you know, you can achieve a certain degree of, I guess, satisfaction and a certain degree of, of development as long as you center those values that we were talking about, Brendan. But for me, first and foremost, it has to come down to your connections and your, you know, and how you are aware of your genealogical connections to those who have come before you and to those who will come after. After you. Once you've kind of, well, for me, once I came to terms and understood that my world needed to be seen in that way from my own sort of perspective, it really helped to kind of center and make me a lot more confident in sort of the spaces that I occupy because I will always be the one that sticks out, but that's okay as long as I know that I have a community behind me. And that community doesn't have to be an easily, you know, uh, definable community. It just needs to be a community that makes me feel safe. And, you know, as long as, as, as you can find that, you know, you will be able to find a certain degree of, of satisfaction or wholeness that you search for. And, you know, as Pacific people, I think it is this whole idea of, of connection that makes sense for us and focusing on those connections as opposed to the divisions. Because this is the thing, when we talk about, 
you know, the usefulness of identity frameworks and politics and helping, you know, us achieve certain changes within these systems can also then sort of alienate us from what makes us come together. And it's those connections. And I think once we focus on those, and that's kind of where my sort of academic praxis is now sort of located as a teacher, as an educator, as well as a researcher. It's always about trying to find connections and how can I connect with the communities that I want to work with. And hopefully that was what you're after, Brandon. Yeah, I just, I'm so blown away right now. And I'm just, <laughs> I, I have no word. I think, yeah. And it, it kind of ties into, right, what, like what we're doing here with Soul What's Akin, right? Basing these connections for folks across Oceania. Thank you so much, Patrick, for just sharing space and just imparting such good wisdom. <laughs> Thank you for just your vulnerability, transparency, and then also just the stories. I, I can't express how much I appreciate and value your stories. You tell them. So thank you. Thank you. Patrick. Honestly, it's, I'm the same. Like as being, I'm just blown away <laughs> and so grateful that you took the time to share with us as B said in such a beautiful honest fulfilling kind of way so um yeah thank you so much we're so grateful and so blessed to have you it's my pleasure thank you so much for inviting me to, to hold space and connect with y'all because now what's going to happen is that every time we're in each other's cities we're going to hang out <laughs> yeah I want to leave you today thinking on the nature of constructs. What constructs exist in our lives? How do we allow them to define us? And why do we allow them to define others? As mentioned in our Dalanor, Patrick values the importance of presenting his truth, no matter the place, no matter the space. He is just as much a doctor as he is a community member, a Mariah Carey stan, a son, a nephew, a cousin, a friend. I wonder often how visibility wears down on those on the front lines and the overwhelming urgency of surviving in a world that is more dangerous for some of our Sawata kin than it is for others. In the words of Michaela Cole, In a world that entices us to browse through the lives of others, to help us better determine how we feel about ourselves, and to in turn feel the need to be constantly visible, for visibility these days seems to somehow equate to success. Do not be afraid to disappear from it, from us, for a while, and see what comes to you in the silence. So I leave you with this final question. Where do you draw the line between rigid and fluid constructs of self? And how will you disrupt this for the betterment of your neighbor?